If you've got a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 7. That's where we're going to be this morning. While you do that and we sort of let kids get, get off and get situated, when you came in, you should have gotten a little bulletin. If you flip that over to the back, there's a block in there about uh, a pool party tonight. That's at Clayview Country Club. An opportunity, there's like no agenda or program there. It's just an opportunity to come hang out, swim, play pickleball, tennis, um, just sort of be together as a church. That is 4.30 to 7.30 at Clayview Country Club, but you do have to register. There's a limit to the number of people that we can have. When the morning started, there was still space. So if you go to the little QR code and register, it'll tell you if it's full or not. But if it's not, we'd love to have you come and join us. 4.30 to 7.30, Clayview Country Club. Um, Genesis 7. We're going to do the whole chapter today, verses 1 through 24, but let's pray and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for the opportunity to come into this place and just enjoy the joy of being your people. Uh, God, there is joy in the house of the Lord, but there's joy beyond this place as well. God, thanks to the work of Jesus on our behalf and the hope that we have in him, we can have pervasive joy. We praise you for that. God, we pray that you would open up certainly our minds to the truth of scripture this morning, God, but also open up our hearts to receive that truth. God, your Holy Spirit present here among us, would you take the truth of your word, help our eyes to see it, our ears to hear it, our minds to understand it, ultimately help our hearts to embrace it this morning. Conform us more deeply into the image of Jesus. Give, her, give us a deeper understanding of your grace shown to us in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so the story goes, there was a little boy on a hillside one day, and he uh, was a shepherd. He oversaw, along with some others, tending to this village's sheep. And one day he's out on this hillside in a pasture, he's hot, he's bored, and he decides that at the top of his lungs, he will yell, wolf! And when he does so, other shepherds as well as some from the town come running out in order to protect their assets out there, the sheep, only to find out there is no wolf. And the next day, bored, hot, out on the hillside, having enjoyed the excitement and the commotion from the day before, he decides that he'll do it again. And so he takes in a big breath of air and he yells out, Wolf! People come running out only to discover yet again, there is no wolf. On the third day, out tending sheep, a wolf does arrive. And so the little boy does what he knows he's supposed to do and he yells as loud as he can, Wolf! But no one comes and he's left to try to defend the sheep on his own. Why did no one come? Well, because you lied twice. And the third time, no one believed you. It's Aesop's fables, the boy who cried wolf. And what we do is we take that story and we sort of distill it down to a little point that we typically tell children not to lie. Because if you lie too many times, at a certain point, no one will believe you, even if you're telling the truth. And then we tell children that, they should live by that principle. When it comes to Old Testament stories, 
particularly ones that we know very well. We have to resist the urge to moralize the stories. Moralizing the Old Testament or something like the flood would be to take a biblical narrative and then try to extract the moral principle and tell people that the point of the story is to live by the principle. So in the case of the flood, I just went out to the internet, I googled really quickly like some moral principles that people pull from the story of Noah and the ark. I'll give you some examples. Number one, don't miss the boat as if it's going to flood again someday. And the primary thing you need to be concerned about is barging your way on to whatever ark someone has created. Number two, plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark, okay? Number three, which I think is my favorite, for safety, travel in pairs, <laughs> right? Number four, speed isn't always an advantage. After all, snails were on the ark with cheetahs. I don't know what you're supposed to do with that. Number five, if you're stressed, just float for a while. Number six, the ark was built by amateurs, but the Titanic was built by professionals. Okay, thanks. Number seven, no matter how bad the storm, God always has dry land and a rainbow waiting. Now, these might sound silly, but they aren't all that different from looking at someone and saying, well, God brought judgment on the world for sin, but Noah was saved because he did X, Y, and Z. So you do X, Y, and Z, and you will be saved. With good intention, we, we try to moralize the story, and what we end up doing is creating little moralists or legalists out of people who think that what they've got to do is be like Noah, and then they will be saved. That's moralizing. The more popular or well-known the biblical story, more often than not, the more likely we are to slip into moralizing it. And over the next couple of weeks, as we work our way through the rest of the flood account, what I want us to do is resist the urge to moralize. The way we protect ourselves against that is by keeping like the whole biblical narrative in mind from Genesis to Revelation. The flood account is very early, but it fits inside of the whole. And as we keep the whole biblical narrative in mind, we keep the gospel, Jesus Christ on the cross at the center. And it helps us read these stories, not with a moralizing lens, but with an eye toward who is God and what is he doing and how does that fit inside the whole narrative of God redeeming his people. And so we're gonna continue that this morning in Genesis chapter seven. So if you've got it open in front of you, I'm gonna read the whole chapter. It's 24 verses. You can follow along or just listen. It says this, Genesis 7, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. You are to take with you seven pairs, a male and its female, of all the clean animals, and two of the animals that are not clean, a male and its female, and seven pairs, male and female, of the birds of the sky, in order to keep offspring alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will make it rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing I have made, I will wipe off the face of the earth. And Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood came and water covered the earth. So Noah, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives entered the ark because of the flood waters. From the clean animals, unclean animals, birds, and every creature that crawls on the ground, 
Two of each, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark just as God commanded him. Seven days later, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky were opened and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that same day, Noah, along with his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's wife and his three sons' wives entered the ark with him. They entered it with all the wildlife according to their kinds, all livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that crawl on the earth according to their kinds, every flying creature, all the birds and every winged creature according to their kinds. Two of every creature that has the breath of life in it came to Noah and entered the ark. Those that entered, male and female, of every creature entered just as God had commanded him. Then the Lord shut him in. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water surged and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Then the water surged even higher on the earth and all the mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet. Every creature perished. Those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth as well as mankind. Everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils. Everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living creature that was on the face of the earth, from mankind to livestock, to creatures that crawl to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. And the water surged on the earth 150 days. My hope this morning in the next couple of weeks as we finish the story of Noah is to resist moralizing it's also to resist sort of like Sunday school felt boarding this story. That we just sort of do the like gloss over that you would maybe do in a Sunday school class. The reason is because to treat the flood account that way is to be disingenuous to the gravity of what happens in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. What I want us to see this morning as we work through Genesis chapter 7 is that God in the way that he interacts with the world here in Genesis 7 is the same God that he's always been. And that as the biblical story progresses, God's character remains unchanged. Who God was in Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis chapter 3, now in Genesis chapter 7, who he'll be in the middle of Deuteronomy and 2 Kings and during the prophets and who he'll be when Jesus comes and who he is today and who he'll be when Jesus returns. He's always the same. Sin at the time of Noah was widespread and grievous. We were told that in Genesis chapter six, but God remains who God has always been. What we're gonna see this morning is that he's still king, ruling and reigning over his creation. He's still present with humanity. He's still worthy of being worshiped and he's still gracious. So we're gonna work through this and see those four things. All of those true in the days of Noah and true today. So verses one through nine. The Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs, a male and its female, of all the clean animals, and two of the animals that are not clean, a male and its female, and seven pairs, male and female, of the birds of the sky, in order to keep offspring alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will make it rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will wipe off the face of the earth. Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. 
Noah was 600 years old when the flood came and water covered the earth. So Noah, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives entered the ark because of the flood waters. From the clean animals, unclean animals, birds, and every creature that crawls on the ground, two of each, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark just as God had commanded him. Genesis chapter 6 alluded to this, and then Genesis chapter 7 makes it clear. And it is that God is going to fill the ark with the creatures. And so we're seeing that God is the same throughout the story of Scripture. So the same power that shaped the cosmos, Genesis 1, now summons the creatures in Genesis 7. Despite the pervasiveness of humanity's sin, God still reigns and rules over his created universe. As humanity multiplies, proliferates on the earth, and their sin proliferates both in its degree and in its depth, God does not cede over control of his world to sin, to the serpent. He still rules. He still reigns. He's still sovereign. He's still moving everything toward the accomplishment of his will and his purposes for his glory. And we see that here as Noah builds the ark and God fills it. He created those animals from nothing in Genesis chapter 1, and now he summons them to the ark without needing any help from Noah. He's still king. He still rules. The same God that said, let there be light, and light sprang into existence, now says, come on, creatures, and summons them to the ark. It's worth mentioning briefly here that what appears to be a discrepancy in Genesis 6 and in parts of Genesis 7 with the animals, has an explanation. In Genesis chapter 6, we were told that two of everything was supposed to go into the ark. Then in Genesis chapter 7, you're told that that's actually seven pairs of all the clean animals and one pair of all the unclean animals. What's going on there? One way to sort of bring those two things together would be to say that Genesis 6 gives like the general rule and then Genesis 7 gives specifics. So in Genesis 6, take two of everything. In Genesis 7, God drills down and says, take seven pairs of the clean and one pair of the unclean. The reason being so that you can repopulate when you come off the ark. But you need seven of the clean because you're gonna sacrifice and eat out of the clean, and you still need to be able to repopulate. You only need one of the unclean because you're not going to sacrifice or eat those. They can start to repopulate from the single pair. That'd be one way to harmonize that. There's a more technical way to do it. In Genesis 6, verses 19 and 20, and also all the times that you see the word two in Genesis 7, if you've got a new living translation, it actually brings this out for you. Another way to translate that is the word pair. So instead of bring two of everything into the ark, it's bring pairs of everything into the ark. And then God says specifically seven pairs of what is clean or flies and one pair of that which is unclean. So there you go. If you've got like that little intellectual quandary, there's kind of the explanation for you. What's most important out of these first nine verses is that God is still king. He rules and he reigns. If we are to take the Bible at its word, then we must elevate God to the place that the Bible elevates him. And that is that he is Lord, ruler, king. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, now Genesis 7, give us this picture of a God who controls and rules and reigns everything. The world is his. 
today's popular or pervasive ways to think about God kind of fall along a spectrum. There's one way that would be like the prosperity gospel's way of positioning God, that God is predominantly just useful. You can just use God to get the comfort that you want. You can just use God in order to get like the self-fulfillment that you desire as you have defined fulfillment. You can use him to get that. You can use him to win arguments about moral situations that exist in the world or in society around us. You can use him to get the happiness that you desire or the comfort or the wealth or whatever. He's useful. On the other side of the spectrum would be the way that like our sort of Uh, The air that we breathe in the Western world right now is what's called secular humanism. And the way that secular humanism positions positions God is that he's useless. The prosperity gospel says he's useful to get what you want. Secular humanism says he's useless. He's either obsolete because science has gotten us to the place where we don't need to believe in God anymore, or he just never existed anyway, and you are just the product of random chance. God is ultimately useless. But the biblical model is that he is ultimate neither just useful nor useless. He is the supreme thing in the universe. He is the deepest, truest reality that exists. He's king. Sure, you can take him or leave him, but that doesn't change who he is. You could choose to interact with him in a false way, but that does not change his being and his essence. The generation in Noah's day had chosen to leave him. Every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. Sin was widespread upon the earth and we're told that it was grievous to God. But just because humanity had chosen, we'll just chase our sinful desires to their uh, logical outcome, that doesn't mean that God ceased to rule and reign. He's still king. And Genesis 7 gives us that picture. Many would look at the world today and say that as a culture, we're increasingly choosing to leave him. Whatever, we don't need his standards of what is sinful and what is righteous or what is right and what is wrong. But brother or sister in Christ, don't for one second believe that that means that he does not still rule in the universe that he created. He's king. If you're not a follower of Jesus, not a Christian, I would urge you to think hard about how the Bible presents who God is. And then to try to think logically, like even if you chose to disagree with the Bible's portrayal of who God is, if the Bible's right, then he's still king whether you choose to acknowledge it or not. Your choice does not define who he is. He is, and he always will be. If you are a follower of Jesus, the right way to live in response to God being king is to ask and challenge whether or not our intellectual view of God lines up with the functional way that we interact with him. What I mean by that is this. Okay, God rules, he's king. I acknowledge that, but do you actually treat him as if he's mostly just useful? Like, how do you approach scripture? Is it, this is a way to get to know the king of the universe? Or is it, here are a bunch of sound bites for how to ultimately just live in a way that makes my life better. The second is to approach God as if he's just useful and he gave you something helpful. The first is to approach God as if he's ultimate and he gave you something that informs you about who he is. How is it that you approach prayer? Is prayer this like blessed 
gift of a way to interact with this sovereign ruler of the universe? Or is prayer merely kind of like the last ditch Hail Mary that you throw when you want something in life and all of your ingenuity hasn't been able to achieve it for yourself? So you say, "Mm, I guess I could pray. That's to treat God as if he's primarily just useful. And when you get to the end of yourself, I guess you'll interact with the heavenly father and he could maybe provide for you what you want. The first is to interact with God as if he's ultimate. You mean there is a sovereign king and creator of the universe and I can communicate with him? And like he and his grace would choose to listen to me? That's God as ultimate as opposed to useful. How do you just understand the reality of your relationship with God thanks to Jesus Christ? Is it this obligatory thing that you do on Sunday mornings so that when life gets to a certain place and you need to cash in that relationship, uh, well, I've gone to church enough and now he's got to give me the thing that I seek. That's to approach God as if he's useful, but he's ultimate. We do the things we do in our Christian life because he's the ultimate reality in the universe. And my life, functions best in deep relationship with him. He's ultimate. The other side of that would be, do you approach God mostly with like a sort of bemused, almost like condescension? Like, ah, I think I've got salvation if I need it at the end. That I could pull out my Jesus card but really I function in life as if God does not exist and does not care about the things that I do. We ought to approach God with reverent awe, what the Bible calls fear, because he's the ultimate thing in the universe. As the biblical story progresses, God's character remains unchanged. He is king, always. From Genesis 1 to when Jesus comes back and every day after that, as well as every day before Genesis 1. He's eternally king. Verses 5 and 9 are worth pulling to the front here. It also happens in verse 16. There's a little phrase that gets used three times. Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. Verse 5. Verse 9. Just as God had commanded him. Verse 16. Just as God had commanded him. The passage says it twice in what we've read so far, three times overall, that Noah essentially just did what he was told. Our thinking about God only matters so much as it drives our relating to him. Our theology matters, but it's got to make it from head down to heart and then ultimately like out of us into the way that we interact in the world and in relationship with God. And it's Noah's understanding of God's grace and God's power that ultimately drive him to obedience. And so the same God or the same grace that descends upon Noah, Genesis 6 or 5, he found favor with God. The same grace that descends upon Noah drives his obedience. It's worth pointing this out over and over and over. The order is grace and then obedience. A couple weeks ago when we worked with Genesis 6, we jumped forward to Hebrews 7 in the New Testament where we're told that by faith, Noah became an inheritor of righteousness. By faith is the way that that happened. By faith in what? By faith in the fact that God said he was going to bring judgment upon the earth in the form of a flood, but Noah was going to be saved via a boat, the ark. Noah's got faith that God said, this is the way that we'll be delivered. And thus he becomes an inheritor of righteousness. Genesis 7 brings out the same rhythm. 
I'll bring you all of the animals and birds, and in seven days it's going to start raining. And then verse five, Noah did everything the Lord commanded him. Every creature arrives at the ark, and then verse nine, Noah obeyed. It starts to rain, and then verse 15, or 16, Noah obeyed. Grace and kindness to Noah is literally standing right in front of him in the form of a giant boat, two-thirds the size of the Titanic. There it is. There's all of God's grace and goodness to you. He's going to deliver you in that thing. And every day Noah goes out to work on that thing, or every day for seven days while he's trying to get it loaded up with all the animals, he thinks to himself, that's a picture of God's grace, and therefore I will be obedient. He's king, but he's also worthy gracious and kind, and therefore I'll obey, I'll worship. And God is still worthy today. Our thinking about God drives our response to him. Is he king? Is he ultimate in the universe? Then he's worthy of worship. He's worthy of submission and obedience. Is he gracious and merciful to us and the person in the work of Jesus Christ? If he is, then he's worthy of worship and obedience and submission. But often there's a disconnect somewhere. Now, for someone who's not a Christian, the disconnect is easy to see. God is useless. Okay, so there's no worship, there's no submission, there's no obedience. That makes total sense. It's a little bit more complicated for the follower of Jesus. Because followers of Jesus are people who would say, intellectually, I understand that God is king of the universe, that I have sin, but in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, my sin can be forgiven. We intellectually understand the facts of the gospel and our heart clings to those. And yet, sin and flesh still exist, and so it like gums up the gears a little bit. And there are times where despite the fact that I agree that God is king and that he's been gracious to me and is worthy of my worship and obedience, I still choose to sin. What's going on there? What's going on is that we need constant reminders of who God is and what he has done. We need constant reminders from brothers and sisters in Christ that we live in close relationship with. We need constant reminders from God's word. We need constant reminders in the form of his faithfulness to us in the past. We need constant reminders from the Holy Spirit moving in and through those things in powerful ways so that our sin and our flesh don't ultimately win the day. We need God to rule and reign in our hearts, not something lesser, not our desires, not our sin, not money, not our culture, not what's comfortable, not our politics, not our careers, not our relationships. When any one of those lesser things rule, we'll live in response to them. When we make any one of those things the ultimate thing in our life, we will live in response to that thing. Whatever rules in our hearts, that's what we respond to. And the constant drumbeat of scripture is that there's one true king and an infinite number of lesser things. The Bible calls those idols. The deepest, truest reality in the world from Genesis 1 through Noah through today and on through eternity is that God is king and that his grace has saved his people so that we can live in relationship with him and be freed from the destruction of lesser things and that God is worthy of being worshiped. Part of the challenge is that we need to be able to name our lesser things and it's hard. We need close, trusted Christian friends that we let get close enough to our lives and we're able to be vulnerable with so that when we sin, they can speak into us and help us see what it was that led to our sin. We also need to be reflective in life, allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction in the midst of our sin. Oftentimes, we think about living righteously or obediently or worshipfully and we want to work forward, but 
what we need to do is be able to work backward more often than not, that we sin, we've got to be willing to stop and allow the Holy Spirit to convict us so that we can look back and say, this is the lesser thing that caused me to sin. My desire for comfort led to my sin. My fear of my reputation led me to this sin. That's hard work. It requires the power of the Holy Spirit. It requires the humility. It often requires the voices of loving Christian friends around us. And then it enables us to rewire our heart. Now I can dig that thing out and replace it with the truth of the gospel and the reminder of who God is so that I get my worship in the right spot. As the biblical story progresses, God's character remains unchanged. He's still king and he's still worthy of our obedience. Verses 10 through 16. Seven days later, we're told, the floodwaters came on the earth. And then in verses 11 through 16, you kind of get a restatement of the first nine verses, but there's more specificity to it this time. In the 600th year of Noah's life, now you get the actual date. The second month on the 17th day of the month. On that day, all the sources of the vast watery deep burst open. The floodgates of the sky were open and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that same day, Noah, along with his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's wife and his three sons' wives, entered the ark with him. They entered it with all the wildlife according to their kinds, all livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that crawl on the earth according to their kinds, every flying creature, all the birds and every winged creature. I think that means like wasps. Yuck. According to their kinds. Two of every creature that has the breath of life in it came to Noah and entered the ark. Those that entered, male and female of every creature, entered just as God commanded him. Then the Lord shut him in. I want to focus on that last little statement. The Lord shut him in. Right in the middle of this judgment, the tenderness of God is on display. God shuts them into the ark. Now, I don't know exactly what that looked like. Is it that they got everything loaded into the ark in the seven-day period, and then it started to rain, and they're all on the inside, and in some form or fashion, God miraculously like lifts up the door and closes it there on the ark? That's certainly possible. That would be the most direct way to read it. Or is it that shutting them in is a more like, almost like mental emotional kind of thing, where the New Testament talks about a peace that surpasses all understanding, that in all of their anxiety and uncertainty about what's about to take place in the midst of this flood, God shuts them in and he like cares for them in a way that brings them peace and calm. That's possible. Either way, the mental image I get here is like you put your ch children down to bed and a few minutes later, while you're trying to enjoy just a little bit of time to yourself, your child yells from the bedroom and you go over there, you open the door and your child says, there's monsters under the bed. You don't say, nope, and just swing the door shut, unless this has happened a lot, in which case you might say, we've already talked about this, and close the door. What's more likely is that you go into the room and you do what is necessary there to help calm your child's fears. Like you both get down on the ground, you get out the little flashlight app on your phone and you shine it under the bed and you say, see, it's just four socks and a million Legos. That's all that's under the bed. And then they climb back up into bed, they fall asleep and you sort of shut them in to the room. Like you've comforted them in a way. 
Maybe that's what's happening. I'm not sure. But what I do know for sure is that right in the middle of the flood, God is present. By his grace, he has saved this small group of people and he's present with them. This remnant of humanity who's gonna repopulate the world after the flood is not left to their own ingenuity to save themselves. God is present with them. He shuts them in and he's going to deliver them through the floodwaters. The same God that produces the rain is present with the remnant. He's present and he has been since the very beginning. He creates everything and then the picture in Genesis 2 is of God and humanity dwelling together there in the garden with one another. Adam and Eve sin in Genesis chapter 3 and what is God doing? Walking through the garden in the cool of the day. He comes to them and he says, why are you hiding? Cain kills Abel. What does God do? Comes to Cain. Where is your brother? Now in Genesis chapter 7, sin is so deep and the degree is so wicked and evil that every inclination of the human heart is only evil all the time. Sin is widespread upon the earth and God is grieved to his core. And what does he do? He brings judgment, but he's present right in the middle of it with the people that he's going to save by his grace. This is incredible foreshadowing of the cross where God is going to bring judgment upon sin, but who's gonna be right in the middle of it? God himself in the son. What you have in verses really kind of like 11 through 20 is like a decreation story the verbiage actually sort of ties us back into Genesis chapter one, whereas in Genesis chapter one, there was water over the earth and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters and then God split the waters from the sky from the waters down below and then he brought land up from the water. Now what you've got in the flood account is God opening up all of the access points to where the water was and recovering the earth with water so that in Genesis chapter eight, when the floodwaters recede, land comes forth once again. Noah and his family come off of, the earth, off of the ark and they're gonna be told to be fruitful and multiply. They're gonna be told to fill the earth and to have dominion over it just like Adam and Eve were. God's going to decreate and then recreate in the flood account. And I am not going to answer all of your flood intellectual curiosities. I don't know exactly how the whole thing played out. People have very passionate thoughts and feelings about both the scope of the flood and the mechanism of the flood. But I wanna draw us back to something we said in Genesis chapters one and two, and that's that Genesis is more concerned with who and why than it is with what and how. And so Genesis seven is not trying to tell you, here's exactly like the blueprint for how the flood happened. Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9 is trying to tell you who God is and why he brought the flood. Who is he? He's righteous, holy, gracious, kind, just. And why did he bring the flood? As just judgment for the reality of sin. We know the who and the why. And right in the middle of that, he's present. And God is still present today. The temptation here in Genesis chapter seven is to kind of look at this and say, okay, God is present. So in the storms of my life, God is present. 
And that is a biblical truth. We would have to get that from other texts, though, because this is not like Noah went through a rough patch and God was present with him. This is not Noah had some trials and a difficult season in his life and God was present with him. That would be much easier to swallow than the biblical reality here, which is that God is actively bringing judgment upon the world. That's what's happening in Genesis chapter 7. What I want to offer this morning is that what we see in Genesis 7 is that in the middle of all of the sin and all of the brokenness and all of the manifestations of evil that exist in Noah's day, God is still there. He's just and he judges, but he's also gracious and present. And so brother or sister in Christ, in the midst of all of the brokenness and all of the sin and all of the manifestations of evil that exist in our world, God is still present. He has not ceded control of this place over to something else, and he has not left the remnant, his church, to sort of figure it out on their own. He's present with us in a way that Noah and his family could only have dreamed of. God shuts them into the ark, but brother or sister in Christ, the Holy Spirit has come into you, and there's a kind of intimacy there in his presence with you that Noah just would have like longed for. He couldn't have fathomed what it would be like to have the actual presence of God there inside of him. Like tangibly present with him. So go back to the monsters under the bed thing. The the picture here would not be just getting down on the ground with a flashlight and saying, look, it's Legos and socks and then walking, just kind of shutting them into the room. The image here would be you get down on the ground, you say, look, it's, Legos and socks, and then you climb into bed. And you're just going to stay there with them until the night has passed. That's the image of God's presence with his people. In the midst of all the sin and all the brokenness and all the darkness that exists, church, you're not left to figure it out on your own. God's present with us in this tender and intimate sort of way. As the biblical story progresses, God's character remains unchanged. He's a king who rules and he reigns. And his power and greatness and grace make him worthy of worship. And he's present in the midst even of his judgment. And then verses 17 through 24. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water surged and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. Then the water surged even higher on the earth, and all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet, and every creature perished. Those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as mankind, everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, from mankind to livestock, to creatures that crawl, to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. And the water surged on the earth 150 days. I want to make sure we catch what verse 17 and 18 say. The flood continued for 40 days. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water surged and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. Why am I 
bringing that out. Because the same water that floods the earth floats the ark. In the same act, God is justly judging sin and graciously delivering his people. In the same act, the same water that floods the earth is the water that lifts the ark up so that it floats above the earth. And then as you carry on through these last few verses in chapter seven, the verses that actually make it very clear that God is in control of the whole thing. He's doing all of the work, both of the judging and of the saving. We're told in verse 23, he wiped out every living thing. That's hard to swallow. God does this. We saw a couple weeks ago that judgment is often a giving humanity over to the corrupting desires of their heart. Every thought of humankind was corrupt. All of their action was corrupt. And so God corrupted them. He gave them over to that which they desired. But that does not negate the fact that God does actively bring judgment in response to sin. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that. On the cross, we see that. And when Jesus returns in the book of Revelation, we see that. God is active in his judgment towards sin. He wiped out every living thing. And then the end of verse 23, only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. I'm not going to drag us through like a complicated, complicated grammar explanation here, but only Noah was left is a passive verb. It's not that Noah managed to save himself. It's that God wiped out everything on the earth and God left Noah. He's the active agent on both sides of this, the judgment and the grace. The same water that he uses to flood the earth, he uses to float the ark. God's the active agent in both judgment and grace. And once again, we find ourselves standing face to face with this uncomfortable question about the moral and ethical fairness of God's judgment. We've made a couple points about this already. The first is that as we face this question, we've got to wrestle with how we think about sin. In a culture of like expressive individualism, it is antithetical to us that someone outside of ourselves could determine what is right and wrong. And then not only could they determine what is right and wrong, but they could determine what is fair in terms of judgment upon that which is wrong or evil. That is hard for us to swallow in our culture. And so we read something like Genesis chapter seven and we ask this questions about how God could judge. The second thing we said about this is that the nature of that question depends on how we think about justice. We want God to be just toward evil in the world. When we see sin at play in the world around us, we want there to be a God who would bring ultimate justice to that thing, even if it doesn't happen in this lifetime. And yet, the nature of our individualism makes it so that we would want to stand before God and when he sees all of the sin of our life, he'd say, hey, I understand why you did that. I'm not gonna judge that. Like we want a just God, but we want a God who would maybe bend the rules of justice for us in eternity. And so how we think about this question forces us to ask, do we actually want a just God or not? One thing that I hope we're bringing to the surface here is the cultural fixedness of these viewpoints. In an ancient culture, there would have been no problem with the idea of judgment. For God, capital G, or the gods, lowercase g, to judge, that was like the normal flow of things. Oh yeah, you do something that makes God mad 
or the gods mad and they judge. The thing that would be shocking is that God would be gracious at any point. Like, wait, 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 hold on. What do you mean these people are saved? What do you mean Noah finds grace with God? That doesn't make any sense to me. If I picked you up and I dropped you in an honor-shame culture, the thing that would be hard for or offensive in an honor-shame culture is that God could be wronged and not extract justice for it. That would make God weak and thus not worthy of respect. That would be in an honor-shame culture. In our culture, it's hard for us to think that God could judge. It's culturally fixed, the nature of this that becomes offensive to us. I want to pull back and think more broadly than those things. And then we'll put this question to rest the next few weeks. The point I want to make this morning is that God's wrath and his love are not in opposition to one another. Oftentimes the way you hear the question asked about this would be that if God is a God of love, how could he bring like angry judgment? The classical way of talking about this is to highlight the fact that his wrath and his judgment actually accentuate or accent the reality of his love. The opposite of love is not wrath or anger. The opposite of love is hate, which ultimately expresses itself as apathy. Tim Keller, John Piper, Rebecca McLaughlin, any sort of modern-day apologist or defender of the Christian faith brings out this reality, but it's said really poignantly by a woman named Becky Pippert. She says this, think of how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the inside of the human race he loves with his whole being. When something destroys that which you love, you get angry. And the anger is evidence of your love. You're not indifferent. To be indifferent would be to hate. Part of the challenge when we think about wrath is that we can only think of it in terms of the sinful ways we see it expressed in humanity. Someone cuts you off in traffic and you want to make gestures or use words towards them. Wrath, anger, frustration, but God's not like that. His wrath is not a flying off the handle. It isn't a blind rage. His wrath is a settled and perfectly sized response to the reality of sin. So it's not that God is wrathful and thus cannot be loving. It's that he is infinitely wrathful and infinitely just because he is infinitely loving. They all work together. That's why sin grieves him so deeply. Sin destroys that which he loves deeply. He has wrath towards sin because sin has destruction in store for his people. The great existential crisis of God's response towards sin would be if he looked down and he said, Whatever, it's fine. But he doesn't do that. And even in the middle of judgment, he's gracious because he's infinitely just and he's infinitely gracious. And both are depictions of his love for his people. And God is still gracious today. If we rejoice in justice without the same grief over sin as God, it will translate in our hearts and through our actions into the world in a way that's judgmental and condescending. 
We've got to hold justice and grace together. So whatever is the height of sin in your book of personal convictions, there's grace for that. The church in modern America is sort of, sort of uh, stratified as it relates to how we think about the, what's the worst type of sin. There's the segment of people who would say that the worst brand of sin has to do with like the sexual revolution as it continues on in Western society. Then there's a group of people who would say that no, the worst brand of sin has to do with the injustices of like systems and the way that they play out in society. Racism, sexism. That's the height of sin. And then there are those who would say that the height of sin is that the church is hypocritical and the church sins. Whatever is the height of sin in your book, there's grace for that. Yes, there will be just judgment when Christ returns. And yes, we can look forward to eternity with hearts that know that justice will ultimately rule perfectly. But the Christian looks forward to that day and kind of smiles because we know right here in this day, grace is available even to the worst of sinners. God is infinitely just and infinitely gracious. And there is a settled wrath that is perfectly equal to the severity of sin. And yet there is, as Romans says, grace that super abounds. Whereas God's justice is perfectly calibrated to the reality of sin in the world, there is grace that overflows. That's the good news of the gospel. We can grieve the reality of sin in the world. We can hold firmly to the reality of perfect justice in eternity. And we can look at the world with a kind of hope and joy that is founded on the reality of a God who's overwhelmingly gracious in Christ. A God who still saves people because he's still gracious. The person that sins in the way that bothers you most is equally eligible for the gracious salvation that you enjoy and that God holds out because his grace is sufficient and he still saves. He's still gracious. As the biblical story progresses, God's character remains unchanged. He's king. He's worthy. He is present and he is gracious. I want to close with this. Part of what the flood account ought to do is create a sober sort of understanding within us about the reality of judgment. The other side of that coin is that it ought to stir within us a deep appreciation for the wonder of grace. And we see it in the same act, the flood. God is perfectly just and unfathomably gracious. The same water that floods the earth floats the ark. And yet the flood is just a shadow of the ultimate picture of that same reality that gets put before us on the cross. At the cross, God is perfectly just and he is unfathomably gracious. How so? Because the same cross that justifies or that judges sin justifies sinners. There's an almost uncomfortable insistence in Genesis 7 on the word wiped out. It's in there three times. Once in verse five, every living thing that I have made, I will wipe off the face of the earth. And then it happens twice in verse 23. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth. And they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left. If you've got an ESV or a new King James, the word that you have in place of wiped out is the word blot out. We don't use the word blot very often. And so most modern translations switch over to either erase or wipe out. The picture is to take something that exists and make it illegible, like white out on a sheet of paper. You wrote something, you need to write something different and you're using a pen. You take some white out and you blot out what you wrote. Genesis 7 is God looking down at the world and saying, because of sin, I'm blotting everything out. 
But there's a beautiful progression of that word throughout Scripture. It shows up repeatedly in Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy. It shows up once in 2 Kings, a couple times in the book of Nehemiah, throughout the book of Psalms. And then you arrive in the book of Isaiah, a prophet who's forward-looking. And in Isaiah, we're told that God is the one who will, quote, blot out his people's transgressions for his own sake and remember their sins no more. How can he do that? He can do it at the cross where the same act that justly judges sin justifies sinners. And now everyone who by God's grace puts their faith in Jesus Christ, your sin is blotted out, not you. We're told in the book of Acts, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Acts chapter three. Colossians chapter two. He erased the record. He blotted out the record of debt that stood against us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Love and judgment, justice and grace, perfectly mixed in infinite measure at the cross where the same act both judges sin and justifies sinners. The point of the flood account is not to moralize Noah. It's to force us to look at the cross. Whereas the same flood Judges sin is also used to graciously save the remnant. At the cross, God judges sin and justifies sinners. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and sing together. Here in, in just a few minutes, we're going to close our service with communion. And so if you're someone who's going to pass these trays out, will you come grab these and start sending these row to row? Um, you do not have to, LCF does not have to be your church home in order for you to take communion with us. We invite you to do that. If you have received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, you're welcome to take communion with us here this morning, uh, afternoon. Just grab one of the little two stacks of cups. There's a wafer in the bottom cup, juice in the top. If you've not been saved by God's grace through faith in, in Christ, we invite you certainly into conversation about what that looks like, but we ask that you not take communion. Um, we're going to sing one more song and then just hold on to those cups. We'll take them all together here in a couple minutes.
Brother or sister in Christ, what you have um, in front of you, bread, wafer representing Christ's body, uh, the juice representing his blood, we typically think of this and we naturally and rightfully cling to God's grace in saving us thanks to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But what you also have in equal measure is a reminder of the just judgment that God has for sin. And you can't negate the one without negating the other. You can't write off God's just judgment towards sin and still uphold the wonder of grace held out to us in Jesus Christ. They're both infinitely gloriously true. And so just as in one act, God floods the earth and floats the ark, in one act, God judges sin and justifies sinners. And that one act is on the cross. This tender, intimate sort of picture of God shutting Noah and his family into the ark. When you come before the Lord in your moment of judgment, it's not going to be your moralism or your righteousness that's going to cause God's judgment to pass over you. It's going to be the fact that by God's grace through faith in Christ, you've been shut into him. And now you are being delivered through God's judgment into eternity with him. That's what you have in front of you. Judgment and grace in infinite measure in one act, both judging sin and justifying the sinner. Brother or sister in Christ, this is the body of Christ given for you. Eat in remembrance of him. This is the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink in remembrance of him.
the words we just sang, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Even in the flood, we see a picture of the full beauty of who God is, infinitely just towards sin and infinitely gracious to his people. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. We love you guys. Have a great day. If you're new or visiting with us and you want to meet someone on our staff, you can go right out those middle doors and some of our pastoral staff is back there and we'd love to get to know you a little bit. Have a great week.